Thanks, David. We'll come to our time for the Bible reading. The Bible reading this morning is Romans 3, 21 to 31. That's Romans 3, 21 to 31. It'll be available on the screen behind me and at home on your screens, but we encourage you to, to have your Bible open as well. Romans 3, 21 to 31. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate this righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. That is God's word. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you, uh, Church. Uh, let me just say thank you to Sammy and Matt and uh, all those well wishes. Uh, 25 years, when you think a quarter of a century... They asked me when I started, how long do you think you'll be here? And we thought, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so, I guess, or whatever the Lord wants. But I want to say thank you to the church for our partnership in God's work. Um, there's a word, or well, before I go to the word called grace, which is what drives me, it's interesting that my, my kids keep saying, your hairstyle hasn't changed, Dad. Just got grey, they're correct, I saw those photographs. And I do look good in a skirt. Thank you, Liz Mansell, for that. And um, that was uh, many years ago. But the problem is, like social media, once your photograph's out there, you can never get rid of it. But uh, there you go. Um, just to find this. I said uh, the word grace is important to me. It was, uh, it was grace that saved me when I came to understand from a Greek Orthodox background that it was not my works, it was the grace of God that saved me. It makes a difference. And um, in all that we do together, we are completely dependent upon God and his generosity to us, his unmerited favor, undeserved favor. And so we've witnessed a baptism which speaks of God's unmerited favor towards a young woman who was... Um, as she realized herself sinful, fallen short of God's standard, and yet found forgiveness and new life. And uh, our workers across the globe who are taking a message of God's uh, good news to others. And, um, and if there's one word I want to keep in my mind, it's grace. And grace is so significant as we come to this passage of Scripture. And if you've been with us, we've been uh, three weeks in the Gentiles as sinners and uh, and the religious people are sinners, and the Jews are sinners, and everyone's a failure, and we now come to the good news. But in his book, um, In the Grip of Grace, Max Lucado writes this very powerful piece. Let me read it to you. It says, You know what disturbs me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? 
What disturbs me most uh, are not his acts, although they are disgusting. Dharma was convicted of 17 murders. 11 corpses were found in his apartment. He cut off arms. He, had, he ate body parts. My thesaurus has 204 synonyms, synonyms for vile, but each falls short of describing a man who kept skulls in his refrigerator and hoarded a human heart. He redefined the boundary for brutality. The Milwaukee monster dangled from the lowest rung of human conduct and then dropped. But that's not what troubles me most. Can I tell you what troubles me most, he writes about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his trial, as disturbing as it was with all those pictures of him sitting serenely in court, face frozen, motionless. No sign of remorse, no hint of regret. Remember his steely eyes and impassive face. But I don't speak of him because of his trial. There's another reason. Can I tell you what really troubles me about De Jeffrey Dahmer? Now, not his punishment, though life without parole is hardly an exchange for his actions. How many years would satisfy justice? A lifetime in jail for every life he took? But that's another matter. And that's not what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer. May I tell you what does? His conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian, said he repented, was sorry for what he did, profoundly sorry, said he put his faith in Christ, was baptized, started life again all over, began reading Christian books and attending chapel, sins washed, soul cleansed, past forgiven. That troubles me, it shouldn't, but it does. Grace for a cannibal. Maybe you have the same reservations. If not about Dharma, perhaps about someone else. Have you ever wrestled with the deathbed conversion of a rapist or the 11th hour conversion of a child molester? We've sentenced them, maybe not in court, but in our hearts. We've put them behind bars and locked the door. They're forever imprisoned by our disgust. And then the impossible happens. They repent. Or our response, dare we say it, we cross our arms and we furrow our brows and say, God won't let you off that easy. Not after what you did. God is kind, but he's no wimp. Grace is for average sinners like me, not deviants like you. And for the proof of that, he writes, we turn to Romans 1. God's anger is being shown against. Sexual sin, evil, selfishness, hatred, jealousy, murder, chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. And the question we ask, how can God be just and not give this guy what he deserves? And then we remember Romans 2 and Romans 3, where Paul has argued that even those who think they are morally superior are guilty before a holy God. That's me that's you, all have turned away, chapter 3, verse 12, we're told. I am a sinner, I deserve to die and face judgment, that's justice. But God is a God of love, and so we have what some have called the divine dilemma, the divine dilemma. How can a God be consistent with his own character? How can God be both just and loving? How can God be both those things? On one side, there is human sin and guilt, divine judgment and condemnation. On the other, we have the evidence of God's Father's love 
for sinners. And it's clear commitment to the redemption. Sin and judgment, love and desire to redeem men and women. And the question comes out in chapter 3, verse 26. How will God be both just, punish sin, and be the justifier, declare righteous those who are guilty? Justifier. How will God declare righteous those who have clearly broken his law and at the same time maintain his own integrity and preserve his own righteousness? Justifier, just at the same time. The dilemma appears beyond human answer, yet there is a universal solution. That brings us to chapter 3, 21 to 31. How will God solve this apparent dilemma? And when I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you get to chapter 3, verse 21, you get the expression, but now, but now. And I'll never forget Bible college and say, whenever you see that expression, but now, it's a turning of the story. In Greek, it's nuni dev. You come, this was the case, this was the case, this was the case, but now, nuni dev, something's about to change. God is going to do something radical and radically different to bring salvation to lost and sinful and broken people. But now, it is a salvation apart from the law, verse 21. Apart from the law, a righteousness from God is revealed apart from the law to which the law and prophets testify. The law and the prophets look forward to this day, and that's important. The Old Testament, which is most of your Bible, look forward to the day when Christ would come. He would change everything. He looked forward to that. But your, your salvation, your righteousness does not come from obedience of the law. It comes another way. Why doesn't it come through obedience of the law? Because Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us get to God in our own strength. We've sinned. We've missed the mark. The picture of someone with a bow and arrow shooting a target, you fall short. It's also falling short means to fall behind in a race. You run, you fall short. You and I are sinners who fall short of God's perfection. There must be another way of salvation. How will God justify us? How will God forgive us? God's not simply going to say, well, there you go. doesn't matter. Your sin doesn't matter. No, sin matters. Judgment comes upon sin and rebellion. God's got to make another way. What's the other way? I had a person say to me once, I don't need God to, uh, to live a loving and caring life. I can do it all by myself. Why isn't that good enough? And I said to them, because you're not good enough. Because it doesn't matter how good you are, you fall short. God's standard is, if that's at the sky, the ceiling, you fall short. You never make the grade. doesn't matter how good you are. And friends, we must admit the hopelessness of self-effort and need and to rely on God's solution. I loved uh, the testimony by Chloe this morning. She articulated the gospel for us first and then spoke about how she came to that personal faith. So important. But unless you see yourself as a sinner, you don't come to Jesus. I was 15. I, uh, I was a good kid, as I shared before. I wasn't a rebel, not a big rebel, a small rebel, like everyone else. No one, in fact, no one would have used the word rebel and associated it with me. I was the good kid, right? And yet when I read the Bible and I looked into my heart, I realized that I needed a savior too. I love the story of uh, preacher, writer, Stuart Briscoe. He tells of his, uh, 
of a story when he was training as a Marine. Picture this as a Marine. He said, one grueling exercise they were deposited in the center of Dartmoor, one of the bleakest parts of England. I think there are a few bleak parts in England, right? Especially in the middle of winter. And we had to make our way on foot to a certain point on the map, 50 rocket miles away. There we were dropped off. We had to walk. And so we'd done a similar journey the previous day. We slept out on the hard ground for a number of nights. We were brought slowly to the point of physical and mental exhaustion. We knew this day was going to be a long day, he says. What we hadn't known is that one of the other, my partner's feet, had a tendency to blister and they become like pieces of raw meat. He discovered this on the track. When he realized his partner couldn't carry his equipment any longer, Stuart Briscoe took his equipment and added it to his. So he's carrying all of it because his partner couldn't do it. His feet are blistering. Uh, I mean, the feet are, are becoming bloodied and wearing away. And uh, his pain became even worse and worse and worse. It got to the point where the man could move no longer. He could walk no longer. And at that point, Stuart said, let me pick you up. And in humility, the man says, I have no other choice. I cannot make it to the end unless someone takes me. He says, I picked him up, put him across my shoulder and carry him the rest of the way. No option but to trust Stuart to do for him what he was incapable of doing for himself. Friends, it's like that with coming to Jesus. You've got to come to the point to say, I cannot save myself, I cannot make the grade, and then you see the beauty of the gospel. God and his grace, it is the source of our justification. It says we are justified freely by his grace. It's a free gift. Grace means unmerited favor. God does something for us we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot earn God's approval. We cannot just go to church 25 times a week and hope that that will meet God's standards. No, it doesn't work that way. God shows us his grace and he saves us. But how does he save us? How does it show up? It's centered on the cross of Christ. The cross is the ground of our justification the ground of our justification. God, through the cross of Jesus, where Jesus dies for us, if we put our faith in him, will declare us not guilty, will declare us righteous. It says all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement and through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You need to understand some of the key words in this text. First word is justification. It is a word from the law court. It's a legal term, which means to be declared in the right. And Bruce Mill def uh, defines this word justification for us. Is that work of God's grace, whereby the sinner, through his faith union with Christ, is accounted righteous before God on the grounds of Christ's obedience and death. It is crucial to recognize that justification refers to the status of righteousness which God grants the believer and not primarily to actual intrinsic righteousness. That means we are still sinful, we still make mistakes, we're not perfect in ourselves, but God declares that we are now right with God because Jesus has taken our punishments. Redemption is the second term. It's a commercial term borrowed from the marketplace. 
It means buying someone out of slavery. So we're justified. God declares us innocent because of Christ. We are also delivered, set free, bought back by God. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're around the New Testament times, uh, that would have the infamous slave, slave market. They'd bring a whole bunch of slaves up and uh, potential buyers would pay a price to purchase the slave. They would pay what's called a lutron or the ransom price to set them free or to take them and to purchase them. It's the same language that's used here. The word redemption means to deliver by paying the lutron or the ransom. So the Bible sees the world under sin. We're like slaves or hostages held against our will by Satan, by our own sinfulness. And Christ is portrayed as the one who comes and pays the price to set us free. His price is his death on our behalf. And by his death on the cross, he purchases sinners out of their slavery to sin, chapter 7, verse 14, and out of their sentence to death, chapter 6, verse 23. Justification, we are declared not guilty. Liberation, we are redeemed. But how? Friends, let me take you to a, to a, um, to a prison in Brazil. And I don't know if it's still running. We're trying to Google it to find if it's still going at the moment. We couldn't find latest news. But uh, Chuck Colson uh, was uh, imprisoned many years ago because he lied during the Watergate scandal of the United States. And when he ended up in prison for many years, he got converted in prison. And then having come out of prison, he decided to set up prison fellowship. He saw the great need in prisons, and he wanted to take the good news of grace to people. And a part of his work later with Prison Fellowship uh, in America and international, he visited a prison in Brazil called the Umatia Prison. And he said, this is a unique prison. This is how he described it. When I visited Umatia, I found the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who held the keys, opened the gates and let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas, people working industriously. The, well, the walls were decorated with biblical sayings from Psalms and Proverbs. My guide escorted me to the notorious prison cell once used for torture. Today, he told me, that block houses only a single inmate. As we reached the end of a long concrete corridor, he put the key in the lock. He paused and asked, are you sure you want to go in? Of course, Colson said. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. Slowly he swung the open the massive door and I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell, he said. A crucifix, beautifully carved by the Humatia inmates, the prisoner Jesus hanging up on a cross. And my guide said softly, He's doing time for the rest of us. Jesus did time for all of us. A sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation through faith in his blood. 
Friends, in the Old Testament system, an animal was sacrificed in a symbolic action on behalf of the offender. The symbolism was twofold. Number one, I deserve what is happening to the animal. I transfer my offense to the animal. The animal dies in my place. By offering that animal, it would appease the anger of God. It would avert God's anger that is due because of that sinful behavior. But for us, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. The word is literally propitiation, which means, you may not be familiar with that word, propitiation means a sacrifice that averts the wrath of God. It turns away God's anger from us and it's placed upon Jesus so we could be set free. A commentator, Charles Cranfield, writes, God, because in his mercy, will to forgive sinful men and women, and being truly merciful, will to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, purpose to direct against his own very self in the person of his son the full weight of that righteous wrath which they deserved. God punishes himself in Jesus so we could be set free. Bruce Mill puts it this way, Christ is none other than God himself, taking upon his own holy and eternal heart the implication of his own wrath. And in God's amazing work, with Jesus being that sacrifice, we see a demonstration of his justice. God presented a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul wants to make it clear, all the sins in the Old Testament, God has not forgotten them. He hasn't overlooked them. He was looking forward to the day when Christ would die for those sins. He was looking forward to the day when his justice would take place. Looking forward to the day when Christ would die in our place. And friends, we have the divine dilemma solved. We see the genius of God. He is just, sin is punished in Jesus, and he is also the one who justifies our faith in Christ. He declares us righteous because it draws in God's love and God's justice together. And in this quote, sin is punished, God is just, and forgiveness is possible for the sinful God justifies. And love and justice in perfect harmony. He has redeemed his people. He has propitiated his wrath. He has demonstrated his justice. And how do you avail yourself to that? How do you receive that? The means of our justification? Faith. Not obedience. Not the law. Not your religious duties. Not even your baptism. Not taking Holy Communion. Faith. Trusting in the finished work of Jesus makes all of that possible. And the implications of justification by faith as we just come to the end, having grasped those, those truths means it humbles sinners and excludes boasting. That means I cannot say, I am going to heaven because I've been a pastor for 25 years at Nawi. When I get to heaven and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? He won't ask me that because he already knows why I'm there. But if he asks me that question... If I, if I start saying, because I left my job as a teacher to become a pastor, I took a pay cut for a few years, or I served the church for 25 years, 
or I served the church for 40 years, or because I ran a Bible study. If I start to say what I did to get me into heaven, I've missed the game. You see, it humbles sinners and excludes boasting. It has nothing to do with me, but we simply put our faith in what God has done. It is, it is excluded on what principle? On that of observing the law. No, but, that on, but on that of faith. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And for the Jewish people who are listening to Paul's letter, they're, they're saying, oh, but Paul, but Paul, we have the law. He said, no, no, it's not the law that saves you, it's faith. And Ken Hughes says, this is a call for humility. Humility paves the way for the exhilarating, infinite grace of God to deluge our bankrupt human hearts and bring us life. This is where all who are without Christ must begin. They must put down their pride and their boasting and come with empty hands. They might receive this radical, true righteousness. And secondly, this truth unites believers and excludes discrimination. We're all on equal footing. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Jews and Gentiles together in one family. And in the modern age, Greeks, Italians, Scots, go Celtic, um, Brazilians, Indonesians, Bangladeshis, Indians, wherever you're from, come together in Christ to become the family of God. All saved by grace, all justified by faith, all redeemed through the sacrifice of Jesus. One beautiful new community saved by God. Friends, Paul spent almost two and a half chapters to get to that point. I want you to go away today going, God, you are so good. God, your grace is so amazing. God, I am so sinful and yet I am righteous before you. It's all you. It's all God. It's all Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the saving work of Christ. Thank you, God, that you are both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in you. Lord, we pray that we would have a deep understanding of this radical truth, that this would free us up to live passionately for you and to share this good news with others, that they too would receive Christ and be changed by him. We pray in the powerful name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This is such amazing grace. Amen.